Welcome to Sunday School, and we're going to have Joel uh, remotely here, and then for church I'm going to preach on Galatians 2, 15, 16, on the topic of justification by faith. So, uh, and Eric's in Joel, so let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather in your name. Pray that you would give us a, a love for the truth and a desire to live According to what you've said in your word, pray that you'd give Eric wisdom as he teaches us to word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, Thank you, Eric. Well, it's good to be with all of you here. I'm excited to be teaching out of Joel once again. Now, today, we're going to be working through answering a question, why is the day of the Lord so often depicted as a day of clouds and darkness? And what we're going to learn today is that the judgment that's coming in the future day of the Lord is going to be indeed very fierce, hence the darkness and clouds metaphor. And the reason being is because God himself is the fiercest enemy anyone could ever face. And I think this is very apropos for today because right now as I'm speaking, all of you know that there's been a Marxist movement in America where they are ginning up imaginary enemies they are ginning up imaginary threats like global warming. But the Bible depicts that the ultimate threat that faces humanity is our own sin and falling under the wrath of a holy and righteous God in the future day of the Lord. And so today we're going to learn that the reason the day of the Lord is depicted as a day of darkness is it's for unbelievers. If you're an unbeliever, if you don't trust in Jesus Christ, it is indeed a day of gloom not a day of rejoicing. So I want to begin here by showing you the outline, reminding you where we've been and where we're going, because we're now in chapter two. So I want to remind you that in Joel chapter one, the focus was on the locust plague. Well, now today, as we go into Joel chapter two, what Joel is going to remind the people is that if they don't repent from their idolatry, God is going to send greater judgments, namely a human army. And that, of course, would be the Assyrians and later the Babylonians in the near term, that is in the prophet's day. But in Joel chapter three, when we get there, there's gonna be a focus on the human armies in the far term, that's still in our future, which will surround Jerusalem. And when they surround Jerusalem, that's when Messiah is going to return and destroy the enemies and save his people. Now, again, what Joel wants us to see and wanted his audience to see is if they don't respond to the locust plague, God was gonna send even greater judgments to come. Now, remember the major theme in the book of Joel is that God was warning Judah that they should not deceive themselves into thinking that they could live like pagans and yet that the day of the Lord would go well for them. Okay, and so that's something we'll explore again here today. But I want to also remind you that this theme, the day of the Lord, is what dominates the book of Joel. Joel 1.15, we saw the reference to the day of the Lord being near uh, Joel 2, 1, we saw the reference, that, that'll be today, by the way, the day of the Lord is coming. Then when we get to chapter 3, verse 14, we'll see that the day of the Lord is near. Now, the idea here is since the day of the Lord is all over the scriptures, and because you and I as believers are going to spend the vast majority of our existence in the eternal day of the Lord, I think it behooves us to understand what the day of the Lord is. And I think it behooves every person to be right with Christ before the coming of the day of the Lord. So let's begin and see how Joel talks about this coming human army. Listen to what he says, very interesting. Joel 2, 1 through 2. 
Joel said, blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. Now, dear ones, I want you to notice here in the beginning of verse 1, this phrase, blow a trumpet in Zion. What's being blown here is actually a shofar. And I want you to remember that when we talk about Jerusalem, we're talking about the Jerusalem of antiquity that had walls, that had towers, that had gates. And they would use watchmen on the wall to look out for oncoming enemies. And so here, the shofar that would be being blown would be much like in a medieval town. Remember, they had churches that would have the church bells go. And the church bells could be used either to summon people to worship or to warn of oncoming enemies. Well, that's the way the shofar worked. It could either be used to bring people to worship, but it also was used like a modern air raid siren, as one scholar put it, warning people of impending doom at the hands of the enemy. Now, what I want you to see here is that this idea of the trumpet being blown is something that would only occur for a human enemy. In fact, it's used many times in the prophets, Jeremiah chapter 4, Jeremiah chapter 6, um, Hosea 5, 8. And in every time, it's used to warn people about an impending judgment from a human army. So this tips us off that no longer is Joel referring strictly to a locust judgment, but now he's switching to talk about a human army. And we get more evidence of that in verse 2. Notice this human army is going to come as the dawn. Now, it may seem as if Joel is mixing his metaphors, because here he's talking about clouds and darkness, and here he talks about the human army being like the dawn. But he's not mixing his metaphors. The point being is that this human army cannot be escaped. You can't escape the dawn. Uh, you may try, but you can't get away from it. The day comes. In the same way, you can't get away from this army. Notice it's a people. Notice the term in Hebrew there, am. You have a people that is great and mighty. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out is certainly God is using this human army. And if the Israelites won't repent of their idolatry because of the locust plague, this greater judgment is going to come. In fact, notice in red, the human army is described as a manifestation of the day of the Lord. So the locust plague was a manifestation of the day of the Lord. God's wrath upon Judah, if they didn't repent, they get this human army. Okay, now, one thing I want to show you, and I want to point to the next slide here, is I want you to see that God does use nations as instruments of his wrath to punish either Israel or to punish Judah. So I want you to notice here what God says in Isaiah. And before I put this passage up, remember, I believe Joel wrote his book around 840 BC. About 125 years later, Isaiah was writing this. And you see that Judah is again under the threat of this nation as an enemy. Notice Isaiah 10, 5 through 6. In the beginning of verse 5, it says, Woe to Assyria. Now, let me just stop there for a moment. The woe here is a woe to Assyria, it's a woe or oracle to them. However, Assyria is the vessel that's being used by God to judge Judah. Although, so think of Assyria like Judas. Okay, Judas did that which 
brought about God's plan, but Judas was doing evil. The same thing is true of Assyria. It is evil that they plan on murdering all of God's people and wiping them out, but God was using it for his purposes. That's the point. So he says, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. And I want you to notice here in the red, God is sending the nation of Assyria against the godless nation. Who's the godless nation here? Well, that would, of course, would be Judah. But Judah's the godless nation. They're the ones who are breaking covenant. They're the ones who are worshiping Baal rather than Yahweh. Now, notice he says he commissions it against the people of his fury. Again, that's the covenant people of God because they, like the pagan world, trusted in foreign gods rather than Yahweh himself. So clearly God is using the people of Assyria as a vessel of wrath against Judah for their sin. And so this is exactly what Joel had prophesied. If you don't listen to the locust plague, God is going to send upon you even greater judgment. Now, a few things I want to focus on. Notice the descriptions. Assyria is the rod of God's anger. The term anger there in Hebrew comes from the term af. It literally means the nose or the nostrils. And I think the imagery that's being conveyed here is God's nostrils, in a metaphorical way, are being flared in anger. He is exceedingly angry with the idolatry of his people. And so, yes, they didn't listen to the locust plague. Now he's sending them, the nations upon them, in judgment. And Assyria is the vessel of anger. Notice here, he also says they're the staff of his indignation. Now here, indignation means that God is outraged with the idolatry of the people of Judah. What outrages God is not always what outrages man. He is outraged with idolatry. He is outraged with sin. Now, I say that today because today we're living during a culture of outrage, especially with the Marxist movement, but the outrage of people today is not in keeping with what God is outraged by. So remember, there was a time in America where people were outraged with sin. They would be outraged by premarital sex, or uh, they would be outraged with stealing and murder, uh, abortion, all those things, but now the outrage has been turned to things that are not sinful. That which is sinful and outrages God is normalized and counted as beautiful, but that which is not a sin, like for example, lately we've seen the idea that if you're born in suburbia, or if you're born wealthy, or if you actually own a business, somehow you're sinning. But the God of the Bible doesn't declare any of those things to be sin. Jesus Christ, who's the covenant lawgiver of the new covenant with his apostles, don't define you as being a sinner because you burn carbon. So there's a redefinition of what makes people outraged. What we learn from the day of the Lord is it behooves every person to have the same outrage that God does. We should be outraged with the things that God is outraged, namely, in particular, our own sin. So if the Israelites would have been outraged by their own sin and repented and turned to God, this judgment wouldn't come. In the same way, the day of the Lord, when it comes upon people, if they were outraged with their own sin, realizing their need for a Savior, 
the day of the Lord would go well for them in the, in the future. So we have to have the same indignation or outrage that God does. I think that's a message we can learn here today. Now, one thing I want to point out too is notice this term. I'll point to it. God says that the people of Judah are the people of his fury. Now, the, the term fury there is evrah, which means that God's anger is manifested in action. Okay, so his fury isn't something that he just holds within him. It's something that he expresses. And what you see here is the nation of Assyria is being used by God as the weapon of his fury. Okay, so what I want you to see here is whether it's anger or indignation or fury, all these terms are synonymous with God's wrath. Yes, God uses nations, even pagan and wicked nations, as the vessels and instruments of his wrath. By the way, this is one of the reasons why I don't believe, as some scholars do, that within the last seven years of tribulation, the beginning fighting of the nations, remember nation will rise against nation, as Jesus said. Many scholars say, well, that's just the wrath of man, or it's the wrath of Satan, or it's the wrath of Antichrist, but they will claim it's not the wrath of God. That is not true. This passage shows us that indeed, God is using the nations as the vessels of his wrath. He did it in the Old Testament, in those manifestations of the day of the Lord, and he's going to do it in the future day of the Lord. God uses the nations as instruments of his wrath. Now, let's continue on here. I want you to see, I'm going to come back to this text. I want to focus more on verse 2. Notice the description of this day of the Lord. Again, the coming nations as judgments is the day of the Lord just like the locust plague was a manifestation of the day of the Lord. But notice the further description. is It is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Now, one of the questions is, this imagery of the day of the Lord being a day of clouds and darkness, is that literal or is it symbolic? And again, I'm going to say yes. But let me give you a caveat. I think in the prophet's day in the near term, it was primarily symbolic. But when you come to the ultimate day of the Lord, where the Messiah returns a second time, it's going to be literal. There literally will be cosmic upheaval. And one of the debates for many years, I remember when I was in seminary, the scholars that I were reading, they would say, well, the reason the day of the Lord is depicted as a day of darkness and gloom and clouds is because that is the phenomenological way a battle looks. In other words, it's the way that uh, city looks when it's being sacked in antiquity and even today. You have dark clouds of smoke, and you have the armies pillaging one another. And so it's just a metaphor of battle, in a, in a sense, a description of battle. Well, I don't think that that's likely. I think much more likely is this description ties us to God's self-disclosure in his revelation at Sinai to the people of Israel. And I want to lay this out for you, because if that's true, the reason the day of the Lord is depicted as a day of clouds, darkness, and gloom isn't simply because the events of it are so traumatic. It's because God is so fierce. The one that we should fear is God. We don't fear circumstances. We don't uh, fear literal clouds or anything like that. We fear God. And so this is bringing to remembrance the people of Israel that God can be the fiercest of enemies to those who don't believe and those who don't obey. So what I want to do is I want to lay out for you the imagery from the Old Testament 
that indeed the day of clouds and darkness links back to the Lord himself. That's what I want you to see. Now, I'm going to first turn to a psalm, Psalm 97. And the reason I want to turn there is here, this royal psalm actually is anticipating the day when the Lord returns and sets up his kingdom on the earth. So it's a glorious uh, look at the future reign of Christ. However, Psalm 97 also refers to God in his revelation as a God who reveals himself in clouds, gloom, and darkness. Let me show you where this is stated. Psalm 97, verses 1 through 2. Notice it says, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So notice, first of all, dear ones, in verse 1, the great promise is one day the Lord is going to reign. In fact, this is a proleptic look at that, as if it's already occurred. Okay, so the Lord is reigning on the earth, and what does it lead to? It leads to great rejoicing. That will happen, by the way, in the future day of the Lord. But notice the description of God. The description of God here in verse 2 is that he is encompassed by clouds in thick darkness. Notice also his attributes, righteousness and justice, are the foundation of his throne, just like in Psalm 89, 14. So I want to focus, though, in red. He's described as revealing himself in clouds and thick darkness. What's the backdrop to that? Well, that's how God revealed himself to the people of Israel at Sinai. And it created trembling and fear of the Lord. So I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 11. Please turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 11. And the reason I want you to, again, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 11, is because there Moses recounts how God revealed himself at Sinai. And you're going to see the same imagery. So again, this is all showing us that what should be feared in the day of the Lord is God himself. He's the fiercest enemy anyone could ever face. He's a real enemy for those who do not believe. Now again, turn to Deuteronomy 4, verse 11. Notice what it says there. This is Moses recounting for the Israelites what God did when he met them at Sinai. Moses says to the Israelites, he says, You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire, to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. Now, dear ones, I want you to notice there in verse 11, the description of God revealing himself at Sinai with darkness, clouds, in thick gloom. Okay, this is something of the manifestation of his theophany. And again, it had created trembling and fear in the Israelites. Why? Because he's a holy God. And like every human being, the Israelites were far short of his perfection, being sinners. Okay, so again, this idea of God being wrapped in clouds of darkness and gloom is the idea of foreboding of sinners being in his presence. That's the idea. Now, I want you to see also that Jesus Christ is described often as being manifested in his theophanies in clouds of glory. He describes, or I, I should say the prophets describe Jesus, the Messiah, as having the same dignity as God the Father. Let me show you where this is. Daniel 7, 13. Daniel 7, notice the reference to the clouds here. Daniel 7, 13, it says, I kept looking, Daniel says, in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. 
Now, notice this phrase, son of man. That is Jesus' favorite self-designation for himself. It's his favorite title that he uses for himself in the Gospels. Now, why does Jesus use the phrase son of man more than any other designation? You and I would probably use son of God or savior or something like that. Well, Jesus, I believe, is using son of man imagery to link us to this particular prophecy, that he is the one that has the right to rule and reign as the Messiah. And so ironically, Psalm 97 here is about when the Messiah reigns. Daniel 7 is about the same thing. Notice in Psalm 97, God is depicted with clouds, clouds and thick darkness. Here, the Son of Man is depicted with the clouds of heaven. Okay, now what does this mean? Jesus is God. The Messiah is God, and he must not be trifled with either. Because as Bob showed us last week, one day every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. You either do that now, or you're going to do it later. So these clouds of glory, yes, they're beautiful to the people of God who have faith, but they create foreboding and an awesome fear in the enemies of God, those who don't belong to him. Now, let me continue on here and show you more of this imagery. So what I'm claiming is the primary imagery of the day of the Lord and, and this idea that you have clouds and darkness associated with it comes from God's revelation of himself during the Exodus and the subsequent meeting of his people at Sinai. So I want you to see that even during the Exodus, as God brings his people out of Egypt, he uses the imagery of clouds in a theophany. He leads the people in a cloud. He protects them with a cloud. Notice what it says here in Exodus 14, 19. It says, the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. Now, I want you to see here, first of all, in the beginning of this verse, that there's a reference to the angel of God. I believe that that is a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Okay, now why do I say that? Well, I think this is synonymous with the angel of Yahweh. And we know, even from the New Testament, that Christ is the one who was depicted as caring for the people in the wilderness. We see this in 1 Corinthians 10. I think by implication, it's in John chapter 6. Um, remember, Paul talks about the rock was Christ that followed them in the wilderness. So certainly, Christ is depicted by the New Testament writers as being the one who cared for the people of Israel in the wilderness. So the angel of God more than likely is a reference to the second person, the Trinity. All right. Now, how does he manifest himself? Well, notice it's a pillar of cloud. But it's not just a cloud that leads the people through the wilderness. Notice he's also a rear guard. Notice he stands behind them, meaning that he's also this powerful warrior that defends his people from the Egyptian army during the Exodus. And I can't, can you imagine the Egyptian army has faced many foes over the years, but there is not a greater foe that they could have ever faced other than the Holy One of Israel. He is the most frightening enemy that anyone could face, but here he's protecting the people and it happens in a cloud. Now I want you to see this cloud imagery then isn't just during the Exodus, but it happens subsequently when you come to Sinai. Turn your Bibles to Exodus 19.9. Please turn your Bibles to Exodus 19.9. I want you to turn there because there, God is going to reveal himself with a thick cloud. And you're going to see that this ends up creating 
fear in the people. Exodus 19.9, please turn your Bibles there. Exodus 19.9, let me read that off my notes. Again, Exodus 19, verse 9. And again, you're going to see now that they're at Sinai, God reveals himself on the mountain with clouds and darkness. Exodus 19, 9. Here's the Lord speaking to Moses. It says, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you that you, they may believe you also forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. So here God is declaring that he's going to reveal himself, what? In a thick cloud. Now, if you have your Bibles open, please turn one chapter ahead to Exodus 20, verse 18. I want you to see what this revelation creates. I'm also going to show you some additional theophany imagery of lightning and thunder that happens at Sinai. This is all literal. These things were seen. Turn to Exodus 20, verse 18. Exodus 20, 18 if you turn there, notice it says, all the people perceive the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Dear ones, when the people of Israel saw God in his manifestation of clouds and darkness and gloom and lightning on the mountain, it didn't allow them to rejoice. It didn't make them say, well, wow, this is just a splendid day. It made them fear. They trembled. The problem in the book of Joel is that the people of Judah had forgotten how to tremble before a holy and righteous God. They thought that they could sin with impunity, that they could live an idolatrous life serving Baal and the other gods, and that God would just wink at their sin. No, the problem is, they thought the day of the Lord was going to go well for them, even though they were no different than the idolaters. And so, again, that's why Amos, who, remember, he was really a contemporary. He came a little bit later than Joel. But listen to what he said. This is much of what Joel is saying. Amos 5.18. Amos is rebuking the people of Judah. He says, alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you. It will be darkness and not light. In other words, it's going to be darkness, judgment, and not light, salvation. Um, how many times has Bob taught us through the book of Acts that when we turn to Christ in salvation, repentance and faith, we're turning from what? Darkness to light. Jesus comes into the world of darkness as the light of the world. Uh, in Colossians, we see that we've left the domain of darkness and belong to the kingdom of the beloved son, which is light. Okay, so the problem for the Israelites, the people of Judah, is they're living in darkness, they're unbelievers, and yet they expect the day of the Lord to be light for them. That's what Joel is rebuking. If you don't listen to the locust plague that God is sending, he's going to send even greater judgments. Dear ones, again, this is why the day of the Lord is being depicted as darkness. The ultimate enemy they're facing is God himself. Now, let me turn to just one more prophet because you're going to see the same imagery being used. Zephaniah. Zephaniah was a prophet who wrote about 200 years. It was during the time of Josiah. That's about 200 years after Joel wrote his book. And again, interestingly enough, Zephaniah has the same theme. He warns people about the near day of the Lord, which were the Babylonians, which was going to foreshadow the ultimate day of the Lord, which is still in our future. Listen to what Zephaniah says, Zephaniah 1.15. He's describing 
the day of the Lord. He says, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Now, one thing I want everyone to come away with is that when we see this description of the day of the Lord as being a day of clouds and darkness, it's certainly bringing us back to God's revelation of himself and the fear that we should have of him. The ultimate reason why is because God is the one who's going to pour his wrath upon sin. So when the darkness comes, it is often associated in the Old Testament and the New with God's judgment of, of sin, his wrath upon sin. Now, the reason I mention that is I want you to fast forward to the time that Jesus is on the cross. Jesus, remember, was on the cross for six hours, from nine in the morning till three in the afternoon. But for the last three hours, there was a great darkness that came over the land. In fact, notice what it says here in Matthew 27, 45. It says, now from the sixth hour, the darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Okay, now remember, in the Roman counting of a, an hour and a day, the sixth hour would have been noon. And the ninth hour, when the darkness came here, the ninth hour would be three o'clock in the afternoon. Okay, so what is this symbolizing? Well, the wrath of God had come upon the Son of God. Now, one thing I want to mention, I'm going to do a little apologetics with you. This is a little bit of an aside, but I think it's worth noting. There was a famous historian. Well, I don't know how famous he is to people now, but his name was Flagent. And the reason he was famous is he was a chronicler of the Olympics. In fact, he used many sources that had lived before him because the Olympic Games began in 776 BC. Well, Flagin, this historian, had chronicled the Olympics. Well, what's interesting is he recounts from a source named Thallus that in the, the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was a great darkness that came over the land that happened from the, the sixth hour till the ninth hour. It lasted for three hours, just as the Bible's declaring here. Now, when Flagin recounts this, he claims that it happened, uh, again, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, but he says that it happened because of a solar eclipse. Now, what's very interesting about this is the year that Flagin says that this occurred would have been 33 AD. If you do all the arithmetic, taking the Olympics from 776 BC, going every four years, remember there's no year zero, and if you go to the 202nd Olympiad in the fourth year, that's 33 AD. It's the very year that Jesus Christ was crucified. So the very year that Jesus Christ was crucified, and the Bible says that there was darkness for three hours, Flagin, a secular historian, is saying the same thing. In fact, Flagin said that darkness was so profound that as the people came out at noon, they could see the stars in the heavens. Now, he attributes this to a solar eclipse, but that's astronomically impossible. Why? There was a full moon. It was Passover. No, the reason why this darkness came had to be supernatural because the creator himself was taking the full measure of wrath on behalf of his people. The reason the land became dark is because clouds and darkness are associated with the wrath of God. And Jesus Christ, the sinless one, took upon himself the full measure of wrath on behalf of his people. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God the Father made him who knew no sin 
to become sin on our behalf so that the righteousness of, that we might have the righteousness of God in him. That's exactly why darkness came upon the land. It was literal, but it was also symbolic that the wrath of God was taken fully by Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the cross. Now, because this is true, Jesus Christ comes the first time to take away our sins. I want you to also see that he's coming a second time. And when he comes a second time, there's also going to be this darkness. Why? Because now he's going to be pouring wrath upon his enemies finally and forever. And he's going to be saving his people finally and forever. We see this imagery at the end of the seven years of tribulation. This is the end of the 70th week of Daniel in the Olivet Discourse. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 24, 29, Jesus said, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, stop there. Whoops, I hit the wrong button. Stop right here. If we're going to interpret this passage correctly, the one thing we have to understand are what does Jesus mean by those days in Matthew 24, 29? Well, what I'm going to show you is that the, those days cannot be referring to the church age as I used to believe many years ago and I think many people believe that today. They just think about the tribulation as being the tribulation that occurs during the church age. But what I'm going to show you is that those days are, in fact, proven to be the 70th week of Daniel by Jesus' own description. So if you back up in Matthew 24, 6, all the way to Matthew 24, 14, Jesus describes all of the events within the last seven years, Daniel's 70th week. He describes it. There'll be Wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, those are the opening seal judgments in Revelation 6. So when you get to Matthew 24, 15, by way of recapitulation, Jesus brings you back to the midpoint of that tribulation period. In fact, turn your Bibles to Matthew 24, 15. I want you to see this because if you don't define what those days are, when you interpret this passage, you'll be out in left field. You'll have no idea what he's talking about. Okay, so let's define what those days are that he's referring to. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 24, 15, and I will prove to you biblically that Jesus is not talking about the church age. He's talking about the 70th week of Daniel, those seven years. Listen to what he says, Jesus' own words. I'm not making it up. Matthew 24, 15, Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, notice the abomination of desolation. That was what was spoken by Daniel the prophet in Daniel 9 in the last seven years. That's what happens at the midpoint when the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple and declares himself to be God. In fact, there's a parenthetical statement in Matthew 24, 15, where Matthew says, let the reader understand. In other words, the reader is to say, yeah, that's in Matthew, that's in Matthew chapter 9. This is about the last seven years. That's the point. Jesus isn't talking about the church age. So what he's talking about is at the end of that seven-year period, what's going to happen? The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, where in the world is Jesus borrowing this imagery of the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light? It comes from Joel. It happens nine times in the Old Testament. It happens in Isaiah 13. It happens in Isaiah 24. It happens in Ezekiel 32. It happens, though, first in the book of Joel. 
three times. Joel chapter 2 twice, and then again in Joel chapter 3. Joel was the first prophet to ever talk about one day the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light. And so all of the judgments that ever happened in history in the prophet's day never came up to this. It was symbolic. But in Jesus' day, when he returns at the end of this time period, the seven years, there's going to be these cosmic upheavals and darkness will return to the land, not because Jesus is taking the wrath of God for his people, but because he is pouring his wrath upon the enemies that are surrounding Jerusalem. Jesus, dear ones, is describing the same thing we're going to be studying in Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3 and Jesus, Matthew 24, 29, are saying the same thing. That when he returns, when the enemies surround Jerusalem, you're going to have this cosmic upheaval because the Messiah, the ultimate warrior, is coming back to defeat his enemies. Dear ones, the clouds of darkness and gloom associated with the day of the Lord are precisely because Jesus Christ is the same God that was revealed at Sinai, who is fierce to those who don't believe and those who don't obey. That's the point that the biblical writers want us to see. Okay, now let me show you this day of the Lord concept in the timeline, and then just keep filling this in because it's going to dawn on us more and more what the day of the Lord is like. Again, Joel, the beginning chapter one, he declared that in 840 BC, that's when I think he wrote this, the locust plague was a manifestation of the day of the Lord. And if the people of Judah wouldn't repent from that, God would send even greater judgments. And sure enough, that's what happened. The enemy, the human armies that were to be the enemies of Israel came in both the Assyrians in 722 and the Babylonians in 586 BC, respectively. Again, let me point to the timeline. Judah didn't repent when the locust plague came. That's Joel 1. Joel chapter 2, he's going to send even greater judgments. That's what we're reading about now. The Assyrians and the Babylonians coming. Okay, now fast forward to the coming of Christ. The first coming of Christ, I'm just symbolizing by the cross. Jesus Christ lives a perfect life for his people so that by faith we can have his righteousness. He dies on the cross to absorb the full measure of God's wrath on our behalf so that we can have the forgiveness of sins. He ascends into the heavens. He reigns from the throne room of God, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he sent the Spirit. And when he sends the Spirit at his first advent, this ushers in what? The last days. We're going to be reading about that at the end of chapter 2 of Joel. It's all about the last days. If we don't understand what Joel is saying, it's hard for us to understand how the New Testament writers use it. So the last days are inaugurated by Jesus Christ's first coming. Now, notice this time period. How long do these last days last? Also referred to as the time of the Gentiles. You can also refer to it as the church age. But it's also referred to as the last days. Well, how long will they last? We don't know. Because imminently what's going to come is that last seven years from Daniel 9 that I was talking about. Now, again, my timeline isn't to scale, so I apologize for that. But this is denoting the last seven years. And it begins again with the rapture of the church. Jesus Christ in John 14 and 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17 declares that he's coming to bring his people to be where he is. He's going to raise us up. He's going to give us a resurrection. And when we're raised, we're going to celebrate the marriage to Christ. We're the bride. He's the groom for seven years. Interestingly enough, in antiquity in Israel, 
how long would they celebrate their weddings for? Well, seven days. Well, we're going to be doing that in the 70th week of Daniel while God pours out his wrath upon the earth for this entire period. At the end of the period, Jesus Christ comes. You have the cosmic upheaval. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall. You'll have a cosmic upheaval. And then the Lord Jesus descends with the saints and the angels. And he destroys the enemy surrounding Jerusalem. During this period, this is the beginning right here of what we refer to as the broad day of the Lord. It begins with the rapture because after that, the wrath comes. But here, when Jesus returns with the saints to judge the enemy surrounding Jerusalem, that's the narrow day of the Lord. What Jesus was describing in Matthew 24, 29, what Joel is describing when we get to Joel chapter 3. There are no signs that will tip you off as to when the broad day of the Lord will come. But there are many signs within the last seven years to tip people living in that period off as to when their redemption comes and the Messiah will set up his kingdom that will last for a thousand years on the earth. So what I want you to see then is Joel chapter one, locust plague. Joel chapter two, destruction by the hands of the physical enemies of God, the nations. Joel chapter three, the ultimate day of the Lord, the narrow day of the Lord, where the Messiah comes and reigns. Joel chapter one, Joel chapter two, Joel chapter three. And again, each of them is accompanied by darkness and by the clouds of wrath. Why? Because it is all manifestations of God's wrath against sin. So what should we do? Oops, I hit the wrong button. Sorry about that. Well, I want to take the words from the Apostle Peter. What must we do in light of the fact that this day of wrath is coming in the future? Well, we have to flee to Christ. That's Peter's point from Pentecost. What I'm citing to you here from Acts 2, 20 through 21 is the very first sermon that was ever preached to the church, as it were. It's preached by the Apostle Peter. And what he's preaching here is a message to turn to the Lord. And by the way, the reason why this is in all caps is because it's from Joel. In fact, as Peter cites this, it's from Joel 2, 28 through 32, the longest uninterrupted quotation of an Old Testament passage by a New Testament writer in the entire New Testament. And so listen to what he says. Remember, Peter begins by talking about Joel 2.28, that it was fulfilled when men were hearing other men speaking in their native language by the handing out of the tongues. He said, this is what Joel prophesied when he said, in the last days, God would send his spirit upon all mankind. He would pour it out. And the, the young men would see visions the uh, old men would have dreams, etc. He talks about this prophesying. Well, then he concludes at the very end that the sun would be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Stop there. Again, that's referring to Joel. All of this is Joel. And what does it happen? It happens before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. Now, what's that referring to? It's referring to the narrow day, the last day where Jesus comes and defends Israel against the enemies of God. And notice Peter's conclusion, verse 21, he says, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The rest of Peter's sermon is dedicated to proving that Jesus is the name of the Lord that you should call on. Dear ones, the greatest threat that humanity faces is in fact the day of the Lord and Jesus Christ is the most formidable enemy. Now I say that because lately, 
There have been Marxist organizations in America and really a movement in our culture to find enemies where no enemies exist. And one of the enemies that are being created are actual races. There are certain people just because they're born a certain color are now people's enemies. That's all because of Marxism. Let me explain why. And then I wanna talk about how there ultimately are only two races. Right now, what we have is a ginned up divide between different races in America. And the way this comes about is remember the Marxist dream is to build a kingdom on earth, a utopia, by taking from the haves and giving to the have-nots. The haves, they called the bourgeoisie, the business owner, and the have-not was the proletariat, the worker. That's how Marx conceived. And what he thought is that this battle would go back and forth and it would create a synthesis over time and one day a utopia. Bob has talked about the spiritual version of that with Hegel. Okay, well, what happened is in the 1920s when Marxists came to Europe, they couldn't understand why in America the haves and the have-nots were getting along so well. In other words, there wasn't this radical warfare between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. So to gin up hatred and division, they came up with a plan all the way back in the 1920s to break people according to race, class, gender. You're going to have a have race and a have not race. You're going to have a have gender and a have not gender. The have gender is the heterosexual. The have nots are the homosexual. Okay. And so they're always going to divide people that way. By the way, homosexuality is a sin, but it's not a sin to be born white or to be born in suburban uh, Minneapolis or in the suburbs anywhere in the United States. But that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to gin up that hatred. But we as Christians have to have a response. And one of the responses I think that we should show is that biblically, especially to people who are claiming to be followers of Christ and yet are in emergent churches, the Bible ultimately depicts only two races. Those who have fled to Jesus Christ by faith and those who have not. And those who have not are going to suffer the greatest wrath against the fiercest enemy that anyone could ever face, a real enemy, the Lord Jesus Christ. But those who flee to Jesus Christ are going to have the forgiveness of sins. And it doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter all the things that the left claims matter. What matters is if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So why should we have faith in Christ? Because Christ as the second person of the Trinity, existed as God and with God from all eternity. At a point in time, he humbled himself and became a man, and he lived the perfect life that none of us could, so that by faith in him, his righteousness could be clothed upon us so that we could stand before this holy and righteous God. But this Jesus, as we talked about earlier in Matthew 27, also took upon himself the full measure of God's wrath, signified by the darkness coming upon the land. And he did that so that he, the just, could pay off our debt to bring us, the unjust, to God. The proof that Jesus accomplishes, the proof that he gives us forgiveness of sins by what he did for us, is seen by the fact that on the third day after his death, he was bodily raised from the dead. This Jesus also bodily ascended into the heavens where he's seated at the right hand of God, where he's reigning and ruling, but he's coming again to bring his kingdom to earth. And he's going to come and bring salvation for his people finally and forever but he's coming to bring darkness and wrath upon his enemies yes the day of the lord will be the worst time period unbelievers will have ever faced and the only way out as jesus commands is to repent and to believe the gospel
If people will trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, he has promised them the forgiveness of sins and he has promised them everlasting life. Then the day of the Lord is going to be a time of joy. It'll be the dawning of a beautiful day. But if people don't repent and they don't come to Christ, if they're not indignant with the things that God is indignant with, if they're going to follow Karl Marx, if they're going to follow Buddha, if they're going to follow any other religion, the day of the Lord will mean that they will face the fiercest enemy that anyone ever could, the Lord Jesus. Let's, let's bow our heads in prayer, and then I'm going to take some questions. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the fact that you've made it clear in your word what we, what we must do to escape this coming wrath, that we have to have faith in your Son, that through him we can have everlasting life, the hope of a glorious kingdom. And I do pray, Lord, as the society darkens and as people redefine what is moral and immoral, call good evil and evil good, that we as believers would stand for your truth, that we would be salt and light, but that we'd also never get discouraged, that we would persevere and know that our redemption draws nigh. I do pray for my brothers and sisters in this regard. In Jesus' name we pray. I also pray for Bob, for his message, Lord, that we'd hear afresh the importance of salvation by faith alone from the book of Galatians. We pray that you'd open our ears, and if anyone doesn't know you today, that they would hear those words, that they would repent and come to faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Amen. I'll open Thank it up you. for questions here. I'm going to so, see if I can get some video going over here. Um, I did record it, yes. So I have to stop Yeah, you recorded it. it. Let's see if we can get the other video going here. Well, maybe I should record the questions and answers, too. I don't know. Yeah, keep it recording, but if you could take the PowerPoint down. Roger. And get uh, another screen open for another. How do I do that, by the way? Let's see. I, I don't know. Stop. Let's see. Oh, here it is. I know how to do it. There we are. Uh -huh. How's that? We're here. Sorry, you get to see uh, more of me. Um, Eric, I I'm glad you talked about those two races. There's a verse that I think we should all turn to. Yeah. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, because I was thinking about that, too. Yeah. Because there's so much acrimony now uh, going on. And 1 Corinthians 15, 22 is uh, a verse I want everybody to turn to. Amen. You need to know these verses. We need to look at things biblically. Amen. The world is really uh, hostile toward Christianity, toward the church, and is feeding us wrong categories. Okay? Now, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Let me read that verse. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. There's those categories that Eric was talking about. In, see, the whole human race is descended from Adam. Jesus Christ is unique, as Eric preached, because of being fully human, fully God, virgin born. Amen. But since Christ came, died for sins, ascended into heaven, in the beginning of the church age on Pentecost, we have 
the possibility for those who believe in him to be in Christ. Okay? What do we have to do to be in Adam? Be born. What do we have to do to be in Christ? Born again. To be born again. Now, that's what matters to us. That's what matters in eternity. As far as nations and races of people on the earth, as we've been seeing in Genesis, when I've been in Acts, I've also gone back trying to build a biblical worldview from Genesis, and we see that um, God drew out the boundaries of the nations, okay? And that the different peoples and nations and ethnicities of persons on the face of the earth are part of the diversity that God intended. Amen. But all of those persons are in Adam. Okay, the federal head of the human race. In Adam, all die. Adam's sin plunged the whole human race into being a state of alienation from God. And so to change that, we need to be in Christ. God is most honored when the gospel goes to all of the peoples everywhere, whoever they are. And the great thing about Christianity is it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter how bad your life's been. It doesn't matter how poor you've been. It doesn't matter any of that. What matters is that we trust in Jesus Christ. Amen. And then we have eternal life. And so that is the reality. Now, there's another verse, and Eric, we can ask you to comment on this. Yeah. I know I have it in either a Sunday school lesson or a sermon coming up. But there's a passage in Corinthians where it says, Give no offense to Jew, nor Greek, nor the church of God. Yeah. I can't tell you if I think it's first Corinthians, no, second Corinthians. So one of the Corinthians, somebody can probably find it with their concordance. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about the Jew nor Greek nor the Church of God. Now we we've talked about the two really big categories, right, Eric? Yeah, amen. Adam and Christ. Amen. Well, what about Jew, Greek, Church of God? Why does Paul talk about that? Well the Church yeah, of God it- are those people who have fled to Christ, whether they were Jew or Greek. I believe Greek there means Gentiles. Yeah, amen. Exactly, right? And You know, Bob, you pointed out that was the distinction in the biblical era was between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews had the revelations from God. They had the promises from the patriarchs. They were physical descendants of the patriarchs. Sorry, I've got a little thing that came up on my screen here. They, um, they had the promises, they had the covenants, they had the revelation at Sinai. And so they were the chosen people of God. And as you mentioned in Ephesians 2.15, the rest of us as Gentiles were far off from the covenants of God. And so throughout history, there was a big divide between Jew and Gentile. The Jews had the revelation, the Gentiles didn't. We lived in darkness, but that in Christ under the new covenant now has been abolished. That wall of commandments has been broken down And in Christ, there's one new man, Jew and Gentile, all those who believe. And it's all those who believe, as you're pointing out in your sermon series in Ephesians, that comprise the church. That's the The church church of God. 
Yep. Okay, Amen. so then if you look at the two categories that are not part of the church until they come to faith, Jew and Gentile, they're all in Adam. Amen. Okay, but why does Paul make those two categories? Whereas in First Corinthians, I mean, three categories, Jew, Greek, Church of God, First Corinthians 15, 22, just the two. And I believe that that's more evidence for our premillennial uh, and pre-tribulation view and oh. that there are still promises to the Jews. Oh, very good. Okay. Otherwise, why even break them out? Right, right, okay? right. But there's still a category of people who are the root that support the tree, who are the descendants of Abraham in the yeah. flesh, to whom have been given promises. Yeah. And we see that in Romans 11. And so that's more evidence of our uh, literal eschatology. Wow, very interesting. I've never thought of it that way, Bob. It's a very good reading. I like that. Well, see, Eric gave me a good reading yesterday. <laughs> you get fresh coffee. I, I'm right? honored I get coffee. <laughs> uh, yes, could you come here, Paul? Everything, amen to everything you said, certainly. Um, you said that there are two races, and I certainly agree that the, those who are in the kingdom of darkness, those are in the kingdom of light. That's it. End of story. Uh, do you think it is a, uh, that we should try to leave the world a little bit better place uh, uh, than we found it? Like, uh, or, uh, like the Amnion Ministries trying to uh, straighten out some attitudes towards the unborn? Um, because, and, and is it necessarily that we call it, we may not go, go Marxist or socialist, but we try to make this world a little bit better place. Would that be, how would you handle that? Go okay, ahead, thank, Bob, and then I'll, I'll chime in too. Okay, well, Christians are supposed to be salt and light. And we're supposed to pay our taxes. We're supposed to pray for civil leaders. We're supposed to be good citizens. And... We certainly are in favor of policies that would preserve life because God intends that people hear the gospel and that many come to Christ. And we are um, a restraint, a restraining influence on the evil in the world. But Eric and I reject post-millennialism which is quite popular in America. Yeah. And post-millennialism says there's going to be no literal millennium with Christ ruling on the throne of David and that God's done with the Jews, but that we're going to create a millennium, and some have said in America, and uh, make America the new kingdom of God. Uh, and that's been behind a lot of our horrible things have gone on. I believe post-millennialism is biblically false and that the kingdom of God isn't coming to America through social action. Amen. Amen. And that the kingdom of God is not going to be on the earth until the king returns and rules. Amen. Okay. So we reject post-millennialism, but but we also reject the notion that unless we adopt post-millennialism, then we're bad citizens 
and we don't try to do anything to make anything better. We vote, we pay our taxes, we speak out for truth, we restrain evil, we support life, but we know that this is not going to turn into the kingdom of God until Christ returns. Eric. Well said, Bob. Amen to all that. And, you know, I was going to mention, Paul, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Remember, we're saved by grace through faith. But Ephesians 2, 10, it says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared before and that we should walk in them. So we are prepared, we are created by our creator and redeemed by Christ for the good works that he's prepared, that he does through us by the spirit. But what we have to define are what is good. And um, I remember years ago, uh, many of you probably have heard of Bill Bennett. He wrote a book called The Death of Outrage. And the reason that came to my mind, by the way, Bill Bennett's a Catholic. I'm not endorsing his theology. But what he was pointing out in the book is that there was a death of outrage to things that people really should be outraged about. Uh, Premarital sex, immorality, abortion, murder. Well, what we're seeing today is now it's being redefined, the morality in our culture and it's being redefined to follow the teachings of Karl Marx rather than Jesus Christ. So the good works that we are to do in emerging churches are defined by the political left. If you recycle, if you don't have a big vehicle that burns a lot of carbon or puts out carbon emissions, um, if you vote for Marxists who will redistribute wealth, the good works are being redefined. And so what we have to do as Christians is to say no, the things that the left is doing are not in keeping with Christ. There's Christ is the lawgiver, not Marx. And um, so that's how we have to, I think, stand in our culture. I have uh, family members who are part of a, at least were, a church that was very Marxist. And we have to point out that, no, those good works, following Karl Marx will not lead you to good works. Following Jesus Christ and his commands and his admonitions under the new covenant, they do lead you to good works. So. Thank you, Eric. We're, we're out of time, and I would, I would point out that Marxism is very popular in America right now. Yeah. It's promoted just about everywhere. And learn your history. It doesn't hurt to know history. I wrote a book about the emergent church and how their um, philosophy comes from Hegel, who was the yeah. one who inspired Marx. Okay? They think everything's going to evolve into heaven on earth by people getting involved with their good as they can, as they define it. And, uh, of course, they have no ground for defining anything because they don't believe the Bible is the word of God. And so, yes, we need to know what's going on. And yet we're not claiming that by being conservatives, we're, the kingdom is going to come to earth. Right. We're not claiming that. We're trying to restrain evil. We vote. We pay our taxes. We uh, do what we can to be good citizens in the world where God put us. And we preach the gospel so people can escape from the wrath of God. And so thank you. Thank you for teaching us, Eric. Thanks, and uh, we've run out of time here. And, yeah, God bless everybody. Yeah. Thank you, Eric. Good to see you. We'll see you all upstairs this Communion Sunday. I'll see you in a bit.